There's a book I got over Christmas time called Stress Less by Dr. Don Colbert. And he wrote uh, 75 to 95% of all visits to primary care physicians were stress-related. You know, Americans, he said, consume 5 billion tranquilizers, 5 billion barbiturates, 3 billion amphetamines, 16 tons of aspirin every year. And much of that uh, so-called medicine is being taken to help alleviate stress or the, the resulting headaches and stomach aches uh, and pain associated with that stress. And what causes all of that? You know, what causes all of this stress? Well, it's caused by worry and fear. What causes worry and fear? Well, worry and fear happens when there's something or, or something could happen that I can't control. And I could be worrying about uh, my job, my family, my health, my finances, my, my possessions, that I might lose one of them, uh, my safety even. Uh, essentially, there's something you can't control or you've lost control of and, and panic sets in. And our world is full of people who are living every day with that kind of fear. In our text today, we're told this isn't new to us. John writes, on the first day of the week, the doors in the NIV being locked. In the New King James Version, it just says shut, but they were locked. They were afraid of what was happening for fear of the Jews in John 20, 19. The doors are locked. Why are the doors locked? Well, the disciples, they are afraid. They're, they're afraid because the Jews had just put Jesus to death, and the disciples, they're pretty sure they're next, and they're, they're worried. They're stressed out. They have no control over their fate except for that locked door, and so they've begun to panic. Now, was their fear reasonable? Were they actually next? Well, it's possible. They said, just, or some say, that just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean someone's not out to get me, and, and Maybe someone was out to get the disciples. A lot of really dangerous and powerful people had wanted Jesus destroyed. And it wasn't completely unreasonable to believe that these same people would want to destroy the disciples too. But whether their fear was justified or not, they have now locked the door. They barred the windows and they're hiding in this room. They are afraid. And John writes for us, uh, again, as the NIV translates it, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Yeah. So here's Jesus. He shows up and he gives them peace. And that's what he's always promised. Jesus had promised, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid in John 14, 27. And in Matthew, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest in your souls in Matthew eleven twenty nine. And that's why Peter then wrote, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you in 1 Peter 5, 7. And that is the greatest assurance we could have. It's great to know. It's wonderful stuff. It's inspirational. But what do we actually do with it? What do we do when we hear these words? Are they just supposed to make us feel good? Can we act on them somehow? And I believe the answer to that question 
is part of the reason why we're told this story about the disciples in John chapter 20. You know, they are not feeling that peace right now. They're afraid. Their lives seem to have fallen apart. But then Jesus shows up. And Jesus, he does some things here that's going to change their lives, quite literally, and they can change ours too. And notice the first thing that Jesus does. He appears to them and he says, peace be with you. And he doesn't just say it once, he says it twice. Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Now, in some religious circles, this is a religious greeting. And uh, when Muslims greet one another, they'll say, peace be unto you. And the reply will be, peace be also upon you. But that's not what's going on here. This isn't just a greeting. This is a declaration. This is Jesus saying, you now have peace because I have walked into the room. This is a promise to them. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world in John 16, 33. That's what Jesus had said back then. But now here in this locked room, Jesus has come to say that they can still have that peace and even more abundantly than they could have it before. He says, peace is with you. You know, when Jesus walks in the room, there is peace. You realize that's one of the reasons Jesus came to earth, to bring peace to the earth. That's what the angel said, glory to God in the highest and on peace among those with whom he is pleased, Luke 2 14. And that's what Isaiah declared in one of the major prophecies about the coming Messiah. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, Isaiah 6 through 7. And there were there, these proclamations before during and after Jesus' life here on earth. Jesus was coming to bring peace to us. And when he walked in, there was going to be peace. But knowing that, uh, that's a little hard to believe. I mean, Jesus has been here. He still lives, but the earth isn't the most peaceful place. Down through history, it hasn't been the most peaceful place to live. There is one study by uh, the Canadian Army. They're never fighting wars, so they can do lots of studies. And since 36 BC, or 3600 BC, years before that, thousands of years before that, 3600 BC, the world has only known 292 years of peace. All that time, 292 years of peace. During that period, there had been 14,531 wars, large and small, in which 3,640,000,000 people have been killed. That is not peace to me. It doesn't seem peaceful. And of course, Jesus knew that was going to happen. Jesus said nation is going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom in Matthew 24, 7. He told his disciples in this world, you will have trouble in John 16, 33. And as long as we live in this world, there will be wars and conflicts. As long as we live in this world, there will be troubles and heartaches. As long as there is still sin in this world, there's going to be all that other stuff that's the consequence of it. But that's not the kind of peace that Jesus was promising. Jesus wasn't promising to give us a peace based on our circumstances. He was promising a peace despite our circumstances, in spite of our conflicts, and in spite of our troubles. You see, a lot of people aren't 
content with that. They aren't at peace unless their circumstances are just what they want in life. If, if they can be in control of everything that could happen to them, they're not at peace unless they have the right kinds of relationships or the right kind of job or the right kind of retirement package or, or the right kind of political party uh, in power of their nation. Unless those things are true in their lives, a lot of people just are not at peace because their circumstances dictate that peace. But Jesus, he offered a peace that transcends circumstances. A few days before Christmas, a reporter named Lee, he worked for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, he was an atheist, and he'd written an article uh, about a family called the Delgados. There was a grandmother named Perfecta. Uh, she had two granddaughters, Jenny, age 13, her sister Lydia, 11 years old. They lived on uh, the west side of Chicago, two-room apartment, bare walls, no furniture, no rugs, nothing but uh, a kitchen table, handful of rice in the cupboards. And girls, they had one short sleeve gray dress apiece, plus a thin gray sweater that they shared. You know, on cold days, uh, they would walk half a mile to school. They would go halfway, switch off the sweater on the, at the halfway mark. It, it was all they had to work with. Perfecta, uh, the grandmother, she wanted to work, but she had arthritis. She was elderly. Uh, work became too difficult and painful after a while. And Lee's article uh, detailed their, their poverty um, in stark and powerful ways. And a few days after he uh, wrote this article and it was published, he visited the Delgados again. And his article um, had clearly touched the hearts of um, probably hundreds of people in the city, the subscribers who got this newspaper, uh, and they responded. They brought appliances and furniture and rugs and uh, dozens of coats and scarves and, and, and gloves. The girls, they weren't going to have to walk without a coat anymore. They had cartons and cartons and boxes and boxes of food everywhere. They had so much food that they, they couldn't hold it. It was piling out of the house. Someone had even donated a Christmas tree. And Lee, when he showed up, he was astonished. But what astonished him most was when he walked in, he went up to Perfecta, and he was astonished by what she was doing with all of this. They were preparing to give most of this away. They had all the things that they really needed before, and now they were looking to get rid of it, to pass it on. Why would you give so much of this away, Lee asked. And Perfecta responded, well, our, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. And then he asked Perfecta what she thought um, about all this generosity that had been shown to them. And she said, this is wonderful. We did not deserve this. We did nothing to deserve this. It's all a gift from God. But it's not his greatest gift, Lee. We know what that is. We just remembered it at the Lord's Supper. It's Jesus. Lee was speechless. As he drove back to the office, uh, he began to reflect on a few things. First, he, he recognized he had plenty. But along with that, he also had plenty of anxiety and stress. He had everything he wanted, more than the Delgados ever had had. But he still had so much pain in his life. And by contrast, the Delgados, despite their poverty... They were at peace. Second, Lee had everything, and yet he still wanted more. For the Delgados, they had nothing, and yet they were generous. And third, even though Lee had so much more than the Delgados, he longed for what they had. Now, by the way, the, the journalist, the self-proclaimed atheist, his full name's Lee Strobel, and we probably recognize that name. He uh, says this encounter with the Delgados shook his unbelief, and eventually it, it led to him 
following Christ. He became a prolific writer for the faith of Christianity. Uh, probably have looked at least at excerpts of one of his famous books, The Case for Christianity, all because he met people who had the peace that Jesus promised, a peace that transcends circumstances. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, John 14, 27. The Delgados, they had that peace, and Lee Strobel realized he didn't. So what made the difference? If at least 75% of visits to the doctor are stress-related or anxiety-driven, why is peace so hard to find for some and seemingly so easy for others. Well, the Delgados seem to have learned the lesson that Jesus taught his disciples here in John chapter 20. First, they knew that no matter what their circumstances were, God was there for them. You know, hundreds of years before Isaiah declared, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and we shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah 7.14. Remember what Emmanuel means. Matthew 1.23 says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You know, God was declaring that he was going to step down out of heaven in order to be here with and for us. We have that promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you in Hebrews 13.5. That is where we get our peace. Our peace comes from the fact that we don't have to face this life alone. Because of Jesus, we belong to God, and he'll take care of us, and he, more than that, will be here with us. And that, in fact, is exactly what Jesus showed his disciples in John 20. He showed them he was there for them. He showed them that they have this promise that Jesus will never abandon us, that he will always be there with us. But even a lot of Christians still have trouble with this. Because, I mean, Jesus appeared physically to the disciples, but he's never, never done that for us. I realize there are times... And we might feel closer to Jesus, but as far as I know, he's never appeared physically to any of us. And so the question arises, how can I have peace without his physical presence? Well, believe it or not, it is possible. And that's what Paul writes to the Philippians. You rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Yeah, Paul's saying, you don't have to see Jesus to know he's there. You don't have to see Jesus for him to be there alongside you. For example, how many of you in the past few minutes have taken a breath? Still waiting. <laughs> how, what's the record, Lauren? It's like seven minutes, eight minutes or something? I don't know, but we're going to have some people passed out pretty soon. <laughs> of course we have. If you haven't taken a breath, you'd be passed out by now. You need air to survive. But have you ever seen air? Of course not. 
but you know it's there because that's what gives you life. Jesus, we know he's there because that is what can give us peace. That's what can give us life. In the same way, you don't see Jesus to know he's there. All you need to focus on is what he has done in your life. Rejoice in those blessings, and you're going to be reminded of his power and of his love, and most importantly, of his presence. You'll know he's there, and then you'll have peace. You know, God stepped down out of heaven to be Emmanuel, God with us. So just like his disciples, we can have peace because we know he is there with us. Second, the Delgados knew that Jesus held the future. As I was studying for the sermon, I was struck by one of Jesus' comments a few chapters earlier in John chapter 16. He said, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Did you catch that? Jesus said, I've said these things so that you will have peace. You know, what things that Jesus just told them? He told them what was going to happen to him. He was going to leave this world and what was going to happen to the disciples. They were going to desert him. And I thought, why on earth would Jesus saying those things give them peace? Because by telling them this, Jesus was declaring he knew his future and he knew their future too. That's where our peace lies. On Wednesday night, we're studying the letters to the Thessalonians, and we see something very similar. After warning uh, of the destruction that was going to come when Jesus returned, Paul said he could encourage one another with these words. It's not encouraging that there's going to be pain and suffering in the future. It's encouraging that Christ knows our future, and he can give us a hope. Our Jesus knows what's ahead, and because he knew what lay ahead, he knew who held tomorrow, and that's why Uh, I think the Delgados weren't worried about giving away what they had received. The only thing that concerned them was, this is what Jesus wants us to do, they said. Because they believed God would take care of them, they had peace. Because they believed God knew their future, they had peace. Third, the Delgados had peace because they believed in a God who could do things. You remember their reply to Strobel, we did nothing to deserve this. It's all a gift from God. They believed in a God who did things. You know, we're a couple of weeks into our Bible reading plan. Uh, I'll put the plug in now. If you're not signed up for it yet, there's still time. Uh, we've read through most of Genesis, or already we've seen this truth over and over repeated for us. The Bible is our reminder that God does things all the time. Everything we saw uh, in the first week, our creation, to the parting of the Red Sea, to the birth of Jesus in a manger, the miraculous birth of a, a virgin-born child, to the resurrection of our Savior, reminds us of that truth that our God does things. These were not normal events. These were not run-of-the-mill uh, occurrences. God acted, and he can still act in your life today. When we look at John chapter 20, yeah, I, I've always focused on the next part of the story. Uh, and John uh, says in verse 24, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
you know, we all know uh, about Thomas's doubt uh, when he hasn't seen Jesus uh, the first time around. He refuses to believe that he's risen from the dead until he can see physical evidence. And then Jesus shows up and tells Thomas to touch his hands and, and put his uh, hand in the wound of his side. Um, but I never caught the fact that before Jesus did this for Thomas, he'd done it with everyone else, too. All the disciples had had this evidence presented to them. We're told in John 20 that Jesus appears to the other disciples before he meets with Thomas, and he showed them his hands and his side in John 20, 20. Now, why would he do that? Why bother to have them focus on the wounds in his hands and his side? Well, too often, Christians, people, forget that our God acts, that our God can do stuff. They, they certainly or that certainly happened to the disciples here. Many times, even after Jesus had done all kinds of miracles, the disciples, they had a problem that Jesus could do other stuff. For example, a little after Jesus had performed the miracle of feeding thousands and thousands of people just with a, a few loaves of bread and fish, we're told that the disciples and Jesus had crossed to the other side uh, 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 in the water, and the disciples suddenly realized uh, they'd forgotten to bring bread along. And what did they say? Matthew 16, 7. The disciples began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Can you imagine? Can you imagine after seeing Jesus feed thousands with a little boy's lunch that they would have the audacity to say, what are we going to do? We don't have any bread with us now. And Jesus, he gets kind of upset with them. Guys, we just got done feeding thousands with just a few loaves of bread, and you are worried about where you're going to get your bread Think here. Think about it. And I believe in the promise of Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we, he not also with them graciously give us all things? We have a powerful God. We can trust him to protect us and care for us and give us everything we need so that we can have eternal life with him. And that, that should give us peace. It should strip away our stress and our worry uh, and our anxiety and command us to put our whole faith in God. But Jesus, I think, did one more thing for the disciples and um, I think for the Delgados too and eventually for Lee Strobel that brought them peace. He said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you in John 20, 21. Did you catch that? At the, the heart of the peace, Jesus gives us a commission, a job to do. You see, you know, Jesus didn't give us this peace so that we could uh, sit around and, and watch a movie on the couch or go out to eat. That, it's not that there's anything wrong with being content and satisfied and, and um, enjoying our lives in that way, but that's not why we have peace. We have peace because we have something to do with it, something productive to do with it. The thing is, too many people believe Jesus saved them so they can just drift along through life and enjoy themselves. They think Christianity is all about putting an hour or two in on a Sunday morning and singing some songs and praying and taking communion and hearing a sermon, and then they can go about their daily lives however they want without getting too quote-unquote religious. But that's not the way this works. You remember Jesus saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls in Matthew eleven twenty nine. You know, sometimes we look at that uh, and, and we remember how gentle and, and peaceful um, Christ is and how he can bring that peace to our lives. But He's talking about yokes here. He's talking about work that we have. That there's uh, uh, Farmers used to say that their oxen could 
uh, or used oxen so they could go and, and plow their field. So when Jesus said, put my yoke upon you, he was saying, there is a job for you to do. Yes, I am gentle. Yes, I will bring you peace. But there is something you have to do with that peace. Put my yoke on and pull the plow together. And if you and I allow him to use us that way, we will find rest for our souls. We will find peace. Now, most of you here are Christians, but we still struggle with worry and fear and anxiety. Peace can be uh, difficult even for the most dedicated believer. But the key to holding lay or laying hold of, of the peace that Jesus can give us is to believe Jesus is there, that he won't leave us. He's always going to be here for us even when we feel like uh, we're missing his presence. He is there. We can believe that Jesus has done great things in the past and that he will do great things in the future and he can do great things right now in our lives. We can repent and we can be baptized and we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and have a peace that transcends understanding. We can believe that he cares about what happens in our lives. He believes so much in us that he has something he wants to give us, a mission that gives our life value. And then we're told that we can have peace when we act on that mission. But if you don't belong to Jesus, you don't yet have those promises. And that's why we offer an invitation at the end of every service. If you're ready to be free of worry and your stress and your anxiety, uh, you realize that like those disciples were, um, you're living in fear. You've got the doors locked and you want real peace. Only Jesus can offer it. And he is waiting for you uh, to turn your life over to him so he can give it to you. So if you're ready to do that now, now's the time to come to the front of the room as we stand, as we sing.